neck. This is my manuscript to spit. Lyrics like back splits. I showed the whole damn world my gift. Papyrus from speaking the pawn. Pop a phone just like a pawn. Positioned in the proper placement. Focus like militants. Deep in concentration of cabins. Devise the secret plans of splitting atoms. I verbalize. Lust to bust. Just as dangerous. As watching Mount Vesuvius erupt. Corrupted data disc. From the super soul powered slumps. I get not let an Asia make it bomb. I'm deep up in the trunk, swats, call it crunk The 15 inch woofers make the beat go thump I dump clips of pros, over to a ghost The chillin' is killin' is with the endless tight flows To rap legend, press yourself What's going on, everybody? You know what it be. You know who it be. Welcome to another edition of the Mad Nucleus Podcast. And I'm your host, for those that do know and those that don't know, Justin Felton. And again, thank you all for listening and how y'all doing today. Remember, don't forget to sign up to Spotify and Anchor. All you need is your email, make up a password. And you're all set. You're all good to go. Okay. Today's topic is about something that you don't probably pay attention to, but I'm going to bring it to your attention. Um, About basically test screeners. And why am I talking about test screeners? As you would see on the, the topic of discussion, why do I name it what I named it? Because there's something that I noticed about test screenings. And I named it yay or nay. Why do I say that? Well, it's simple. Because I'm seeing from the test audience, they do that. It's become the new norm. It's been the norm for years and years and years. But I also noticed that having test screeners for films and maybe TV shows, miniseries, what have you, have flaws, a very flawed system that they put in for this test screening process. And you know how the test screenings come about? Well, we can go over the history if we want to, but it was, to make it short, it was a term that came up by the late, great Harold Lloyd in 1928. And suggested that if you want, you know, to know how this would go, you know, set up a test screening type thing. And, you know, I don't know if they had to pay back then or special people were selected. And that's what I want to get to. You know, notable examples would be. Um, let's see, they, they got Blair Witch Project, Johnny English. Little Shop of Horrors, Mary Poppins, Final Destination, Fatal Attraction, Deep Blue Sea, I Am Legend, Titanic, and Pretty in Pink. Others like The Pelican Brief. Uh, They did test screenings. And what was negative about The Pelican Brief's test screening was the kiss between Denzel and Julia Roberts. Denzel Washington and Julia Roberts. The test response to his on-screen kiss with Mimi Rogers led to the scene being cut. <laughs> oh, yeah. At the time, 
you know, black men couldn't kiss white women. Yeah, that's what that was. Now it's like, you know, it's not a thing no more. I mean, it's these test screeners force directors and writers and producers to do extra work they didn't expect that they were gonna do. You know, I mean, what what were they? I mean, what were they trying to achieve with it? I mean, I could sit up here and go through the example. I could read it. You know, what, what, what can I do? Should I read the whole thing? Because I'm skipping through the whole thing. But here's something that I found kind of interesting. 12 movies that changed drastically after test screenings, according to ScreenCrush.com. Before a movie is released, it will be often shown to a test audience, a several or several test audience. Here's the deal. Test audiences are not made of regular Joe Blows, probably like you and I that work a nine to five job every day, you know, lead regular lives. They're not they don't seemingly be shown to regular people. They're always shown to critics and executives of the company these movies are being distributed by. Because I've never met a person who works a regular job, who works at the shipyard, who works at McDonald's, who works at Walmart, who works anywhere and is not famous or isn't a insider of the industry who has gone to a test screening. Just to clear that up. That's why I named it Yay or Nay. You know, I probably could have started it off a little bit better, but it was like so much going through my mind. Where do I start? But I'm going to read this from Screen Crush. Before a movie is released, it will often be shown to a test audience or several test audiences so producers can gain insight into how the public will react to the story, the characters, and the comedy. A preview screening does two things, reveal what is working and expose what isn't. Of course, that's the basics. Of course, we all we all realize that. That's the basics. You go there and you go, yeah, that works. And you have a big smile on your face. If it don't work, you turn your nose up and go, nah, that ain't it, bro. Believe it or not, a negative test screener has the power to alter the final form of a film, as is the case in all 12 of the pictures below. Oh, I'm very interested because this is my first time, folks, seeing this article. So I want an element of surprise. So as I'm reading this to you, you are hearing this for the first time as I'm reading this for the first time and seeing this article. So I'm very interested to see these 12 movies. 12 movies that changed after their test screenings. Whether it's a complaint about a long runtime or desire for a or more satisfying ending, these audiences made their opinions heard. Here are 12 successful films whose test screenings shaped them into what they are today. Number one is Little Shop of Horrors, 1986. Frank Oz's Little Shop of Horrors is an adaptation of the stage musical of the same name, which is in turn based on Roger Corman's 1960 film. 
The intention was for the 1986 version to end just like the stage production does, with Killer Plant Audrey 2 devouring both Seymour and Audrey before beginning its worldwide conquest. Executives weren't fond of the idea, but Oz was granted permission to shoot it anyway. During a test screening, audiences applauded the musical numbers, but tightened up when they saw both leads get murdered. The viewers' hatred of the movie's ending forced Oz to think of something else. The new ending sees Seymour electrocuting the vicious plant, getting a happy ending with Audrey. Yep, that's the, 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 the ending that I always saw when I was a kid up until the last time I saw the movie. I saw the movie with its original ending intact, and I was like, well, damn, that won't go over well with these sensitive audiences. And what's funny is people call today's audience sensitive, but back then, that shows how sensitive back then was because they were not ready for a, a sad ending. Every movie had to have an a, a happy ending back then, if you noticed. Very few could stand the test of time and got away with it. Number two is Fatal Attraction. Well, what do we have here? 1987. The Fatal Attraction we know today ends with Glenn Close's as Alex sneaking into the home of Daniel Gallagher, Michael Douglas, the man that she is obsessed with. His wife Beth, Ann Archer, discovers her and shoots her dead. It's a tidy, satisfying ending, but it almost looked a lot different. Test audiences were shown a version of the film where Alex slit her own throat with a knife that Daniel had previously handled, thus framing him for her death. It was a darker, more clever conclusion, but audiences found it to be somewhat of a letdown after such a thrilling buildup. Beth's final sh uh, showdown with Alex pr provides more of a cathartic release. Hmm. Is that on YouTube? I think that might have been on YouTube. You might, if, if you're... Curious to see how the original scene played out? Go to YouTube and see if it's up there. I think it might be up on YouTube. I'm going to check that out if it's on YouTube. I love Fatal Attraction. You know, the movie was brilliant. You know, typical stalker movie. A whole bunch of them followed through. It was, you know, you know, but that was good because it was some great acting in it. Michael Douglas and Glenn Close. But moving on. Number three is Blade Runner 1982. There are several different cuts of Blade Runner that exist in the universe, but the specific version shown to preview audiences raised some eyebrows. The ending depicted Rick Deckard, Harrison Ford, finding an origami unicorn faithfully placed outside his apartment as he exits with replicant Rachel, Sean Young. Viewers were perplexed with this ending, yearning for an ending that portray Ford more like Han Solo or Indiana Jones. Ford lent his voice to some clunky narration which was slapped on top of aerial footage originally meant for The Shining. Ridley Scott's abridged and cringeworthy ending tried to strike an upbeat tone which is totally out of sync with the rest of the movie. The final scene of the 1982 theatrical cut was since, has since been revised over the years. Yeah, man, they, they they played with that movie so much. And I already did a podcast of the 40th anniversary of it. But, man, it was just so much going on with that production, man. You know, that that's just another story in itself. All right, number four, License to Kill, 1989. Probably the only James Bond flick I've seen as a whole. 
Timothy Dalton's final outing as James Bond is titled License to Kill. But that wasn't always the name attached to the project. Up until the test screening, the film was titled License Revoked. To be fair, that's mainly what the plot consists of. Bond gets his trademark license to kill revoked by M after a quest for vengeance gone awry. But American audiences were puzzled by the title associating the phrase license revolt with losing your driver's license. They couldn't quite connect the title with the movie's plot and so it was changed to avoid any confusion. That makes perfect sense. That makes perfect sense. License revolt sounds like a sequel to the movie License to Drive. If you've seen that movie License to Drive, you know, that was a fun, great movie. I love that movie. You know, but that sounds like a, 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 a indirect sequel or a direct sequel to that. Number five is Titanic, 1997. With a lengthy 195-minute runtime, it's hard to believe that another version of Titanic was actually longer. Test audiences were subjected to a longer cut of the film, which included sequences that many were felt were unnecessary. For example, the original cut included a scene where Billy Zane's Kyle Hockley sent his bodyguard Spicer Lovejoy, David Warner, after Jack and Rose while the ship was sinking. A fight scene between Leonardo DiCaprio's Jack and Lovejoy ensued, which audiences felt detracted from the greater conflict at hand. You know, the one where the ship is sinking at the end increasingly rapid pace. Or, let me add my two cents to that. Or, the band plays on as the ship sinking. After many goodbyes and farewells, they kept playing on as the ship was sinking. Yeah, that great a plot at hand. Such total bullshit, bro. Director James Cameron scraped the scene, focusing less on Kyle's grudge and more on Jack and Rose's mad dash to get off the boat. Number six is Shawshank Redemption, 1994. Great film. You know, if you don't dig prison movies, you'll dig this one. Before its test screening, the Shawshank Redemption ended with Red, Morgan Freeman riding a bus to meet Andy, Tim Robbins, and Zoetia Nadejo, something like that, cutting to black before the two could reunite. Red's symbolic act of breaking parole was significant, but also ambiguous, and Castle Rock encouraged director Frank Darabont to film a scene where Red and Andy meet each other again. While Darabont wasn't keen on using the exchange in the final cut, his mind was changed after the test audience shared that the scene was their favorite part of the film, the whole film. The scene was included, ending the movie... A more hopeful note. Yep, that's that's what that's what happens. That's what people wanted to see. They built up a strong bond and friendship in prison. It was only right it, that you would want to see those two reunite outside of prison walls. You know, the director wanted you know them to just go their separate ways, but it's like okay, they can go their separate ways, but not before reuniting. All right, moving on. Number seven is Goodfellas, nineteen ninety. When Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas was shown to a test audience, the results were disastrous. Several audience members walked out of the theater within minutes of the movie's opening. Why? It was too violent. That's Martin Scorsese. 
But I'm surprised they didn't walk out because a hundred freaking F-bombs was being thrown around. I would urge anybody who's religious and not keen on F-bombs or bad language not to see a movie like that or a Martin Scorsese movie because it is F-bomb galore. The screening was a rude awakening for Scorsese who took some time to soften the violence. Marginally, of course, this is good fellas we're talking about. Yeah. He also played up the scenes between Joe Pesci's character and his mother, which audiences loved. All in all, the changes were positive. Goodfellas racked up six Academy Award nominations that year, with Pesci winning the Best Supporting Actor. Yep. And rest in peace, Ray Liotta. Such a tragedy there. Number eight is Pretty Woman, 1990. As far as rags to riches stories go, Pretty Woman is one of the most popular. Director Gary Marshall and writer J.F. Lawton had begun with a darker concept depicting night worker Vivian Ward in a rougher light. There were there was to be more drug use and Edward Richard Gere would separate himself from Vivian entirely by the end of the film. But at Disney's urging, Marshall got a shot got a shot got to shoot a variety of endings for the film with varying degrees of drama. The winner would be whichever one test audiences enjoyed the most. Naturally, the viewers opted for the most upbeat ending. Vivian and Edward ending up together, wrapping up the film as a romantic comedy. So it was supposed to be more of a tragic love story, much like, let's say, true romance, but true romance had a happy, kind of a happy ending to it, without some circumstances. But it was supposed to be more of, hmm, I don't know too many of yuppie prostitute movies other than Pretty Woman, so I don't know. Take your guess on that. <laughs> Number nine is Legally Blonde, 2001. Legally Blonde made audiences fall in love with the winsome Ellie Woods, played by the effervescent Reese Witherspoon. The test uh, screening was a total success until the ending. The original conclusion to the 2001 film, Elle was seen handling, handing out blonde legal defense fund pamphlets on the Harvard campus with her enemy turned bestie Vivian, Selma Blair. The test audience was so invested in Elle's story that they wanted more for her. They wanted a greater celebration of her success. So months later, the cast reunited for reshoots. Elle's graduation speech was the uplifting send-off audiences needed and Legally Blonde was solidified as a beloved modern classic. Or could it be that they wanted the stereotypical dumb, blonde, blue-eyed girl to be smart, savvy, witty, and everything in between? Because I don't believe that's what audience really wanted but okay i wasn't there i don't know i can't say number 10 scott pilgrim versus the world total bullshit 2010 while scott pilgrim versus the world had a whole graphic novel series to draw inspiration from brian lee o'malley's final installment of the comic came out only weeks before edgar wright's film had its theatrical debut that means Edgar Wright was 
in the dark when it came to the ending for Michael Sarah's protagonist. Originally, Scott Pilgrim returned to his girlfriend, Knives Child, Ellen Wong, instead of running off with Dream Girl, Ramona, Mary Elizabeth Weinstead. But when that ending was floated with the test screening, the test audiences, Wright quickly learned that they didn't dig the concept. The final scene was changed to show Knives encouraging Scott to be with Ramona, whom he has spent the whole film chasing. Number 11, Sunset Boulevard, 1950. Now considered to be a film noir classic, Sunset Boulevard received a much different response from test audiences when it first previewed. The film's iconic intro scene begins with the body of Joe Gillis, William Holden floating in the pool with a voiceover narration from Joe explaining how he ended up there. But those first audiences saw another opening, one where Joe resuscitates in a mortuary and begins telling his story to other nearby corpses. This caused viewers to laugh hysterically, mistaking the movie's tone for a comedy. Yeah. Dead pan, dark comedy where somebody's talking to corpses. But you know what? I want to see that. They were confused when they the subsequent scenes were way more serious. Therefore, director Billy Wilder realized his opening scene needed a major adjustment. Right? If you're doing a, a noir film, noir films are dark, witty, serious, uh, calculating. The last thing you want people to do to walk up in the North film is laugh and bust a gut and, you know, choke on their sodas and stuff. You don't want that to happen. So, yeah, he had to do it. Number 12, last but not least, is Pretty in Pink, 1986. When conceiving Pretty in Pink, writer John Hughes and director Howard Dutch had always meant for Molly Ringwald's Andy and John Cryer's Ducky to end up together. They start the movie off as inseparable friends, but Ducky harbors secret feelings for Andy. But Andy falls for preppy boy Blaine, Andrew McCarthy, a pairing that test audiences swooned over. In fact, the test audience booed the ending where Andy and Ducky became an item, wishing to see Andy end up with Blaine. The creative team made this happen, reconstructing the crime scene on a soundstage. They filmed a new ending in just one day, adding a sequence where Andy chases after Blaine and kisses him. In March of 2021, Ringwald revealed to Vogue that she saw the change coming. It didn't make sense to have the entire movie be this Cinderella story, yet she doesn't get to end up with the guy she wants. It would have been unsatisfying, she stated, and she's right. Ducky was a good dude, but Ducky, to me, deserved better than Andy. Ducky deserved the mean girl. Ducky could tame the mean girl. He didn't need, need to tame Andy, and Andy was easygoing. Andy was got on his nerves less, and I could see why, you know. She didn't drive him crazy. But Ducky should have been should have ended up with probably the mean girl or Andy's enemy turning her out, making her a better person, making her to see the error of her ways. And that that that's that they, they could have they could have added that to it. But yeah, 
I agree with most of this. But here's my, my gripe with test screenings is nowadays, I, like I said, I stated before earlier in this podcast is I don't know of anybody regularly that has went to a test screening, you know, and bragged to their friends that they saw a version of a movie that was coming out. For instance, you know, let's say you go to a test screening of Black Adam. They already had the test screenings for that. So let's just say you go to a test screening for Black Adam. You work at Costco. You work at the furniture store. You you work at a factory. You work a regular nine to five. And on your days off, you go out and you go to the movies. You know, whatever. You do what regular people do. I don't hear about these regular people going to test screenings. I don't. I, I really have not. And that's why I say yay or nay because I think it's um, kind of biased. And to me, critics have agendas. Executives just want the best possible product out there. You know, a lot of them panic so they go to these test screenings. But the problem is they're inviting critics. The same ones who ruin their movies with bad reviews. On the premiere dates. Why are you catering to that audience? They ain't gotta those those critics don't got to pay a dime to see your movie. They haven't paid a dime to see any of your movies. Just like they they don't pay a dime to go to some of them cons, I don't think. I think they do, but at the same time, they, they feel they're getting a free meal off y'all. So to me. If you're going to do a test screening or something, I think you should invite a variety of audiences, not just one particular demographic, but invite audiences, the Joe Blows, every Tom, Dick and, Dick and Joe, you know, the Harriets, the Susies, everything who work these regular jobs. You can invite your critics. You can invite execs. You can invite, you know, potential you know, investors and sponsors of your stuff. Invite the whole shebang for one great big night only and have a good time in doing that. It may seem like I'd be griping about it, but nah. Every time I hear about these test audiences and I was like, you know, and I'm reading, I'm reading, I'm reading, somebody reveals that it's mainly critics and executives that go to these test audiences. So, <laughs> oh man, it's, it's just you know, one thing after another, you know, when I hear about that stuff, but, you know, let's just say you're going to a test screening and you've been invited. You can say we broke some new ground, folks. I would like to hear about it. If you've been invited, for those of you that's listening, if you've been invited to one, tell us, you don't have, you know, no, I know you're not supposed to tell us about it because you're signing NDA. That's fine. Just say you went to a test screening and guess what? I'm just a regular person. That would put a big smile on my face, a big cheesy smile on my face because I know when the, the regular product comes out, it's not going to be the same thing as you saw. But just the fact that we broke some ground for regular Joe Blows to go to these things, you know, it would really put a smile on my face because just inviting critics and just inviting executives or your investors, you know, do you really get a fair judgment of what you're putting out so far? 
And that's all I'm asking. And, you know, let me know what y'all think. And, you know, and that's that. But, you know, let's conclude today's episode of the Mad Nucleus podcast. Again, thank you all for listening. Hope y'all have a great day, great week, great night. Whatever it is you do, be the best at it and whatever else. And, you know, you know, I don't usually give you words of encouragement, but I'm going to give you that anyway. You know, be productive in your day. You know, keep your head above water. Don't hurt nobody. And I'll see y'all soon. Peace. I'm out. Time to run wild.